1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: There's no one more powerful when it comes to soft money, lobbying, academic papers. Like Google has covered all of its bases when it comes to making sure that any kind of uh, regulatory action is delayed as long as possible.
0: Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. Thank you for tuning in. As always, as I mentioned last week, we are busy, busy, busy working on The Pivot our new spin-off podcast series, which will be a series of documentary-style stories from Silicon Valley. It's launching later this month. So do keep an eye on this feed for updates, trailers, etc. It's all coming very soon. It's going to be huge. But because the thirst for content never dies, neither does this podcast. And this week, we have a super interesting one for you. So you may have seen that the U.S. government is gearing up for a potential antitrust case against Google, which is part of a wider crackdown on big tech. And of course, this trails the EU by years, but better late than never, I guess. So I thought, who better to bring on this week than Jeremy Stoppelman, who's the founder of Yelp, And Stoppelman has been screaming from the rooftops for years about what he claims are Google's abuses of power, unfair tactics, underhanded business dealings, and on and on and on. And Yelp, which in case you don't know, is a review site for restaurants, local businesses, etc. And it has been on the receiving end of a lot of that action. And it suffered. So Yelp's stock has plunged by more than 50% in the last five years, which... It roughly coincides when Google really ramped up its local reviews and recommendations service. And now critics will say, or do say, including a very aggressive activist investor, that Yelp is the author of its own struggles. It's made some missteps, it's slowed down, etc. And we can argue about that. But what is clear, and I think in the context of this week's news, which is more interesting, is that if you are in the Google crosshairs, it's really hard to survive. And according to Stapelman, some of what is going on goes beyond simple competition. And so I want to talk to him about his experience as being kind of on the end of that Google buzzsaw, but also more widely about just how the web has changed and how this class of mega companies has kind of really come up to rule the online world, because he's been at this for a while, 15 years, he founded it 15 years ago same year as Facebook was launched, and obviously a lot has changed since then, and he's been right at the kind of the coal face of that the whole time as a smaller company trying to basically survive and carve out a beachhead. So I thought we should talk about this, so I made a little short walk over from our office in downtown San Francisco to Yelp's headquarters to talk all about it. <coughs> Germans stoppeman? Oh force. Forts.
1: Forts force. Um not sure. Well
2: she's she's here. Hi. Amy, nice to meet you. Um So my early career uh happened mostly at PayPal. Um I joined a little startup called x.com that merged with Confinity, which ultimately went public with the PayPal service and really built out my professional network. Uh, went off to business school after PayPal got acquired at Harvard, and in the summer between my first and second year at business school, uh, I rejoined uh, with Max Levchin uh, near near Yelp headquarters in a little incubator space, and uh, so there we were just working on whatever was going to be the next big thing uh, on the internet. And so there's a lot of brainstorming. There were a bunch of different teams in the incubator working on different ideas. And one of the things that we noticed was Craigslist was, you know, really impacting the newspaper industry by carving out classifieds, bringing it online. killing us. Killing the newspaper industry. (laughs) And so that got us looking around at what other older media businesses were potentially vulnerable to disruption. And my eventual co-founder and I, Russ Simmons, um, we started looking at the Yellow Pages and kind of local search arena. And we got to thinking, you know, what would be better than just a big book of ads? Like what could be kind of native to the internet and more interesting? And at the time, you know, ideas like, social networking, as well as consumer reviews with Amazon and products. Uh, those were kind of in the water. Yeah. Um, and so we combined those two concepts and initially launched a service around asking friends for recommendations, but had built in you know, kind of social media components into it. Uh, but basically, you would send out an email to your friends through this system uh, that would ask you a local question, like, hey, I need a doctor in downtown San Francisco. Anyone know a good one? And then they could reply with the doctor's name and it would automatically fill in information like where where they located their phone number, et cetera, and you'd write a brief review. And so that was the initial service launched October 2004. Uh, Didn't quite work out of the gate as we expected. Uh, We thought, you know, no one's going to sit there writing reviews for fun, especially on random local services, local dry cleaner, et cetera. But uh, lo and behold, we were completely off on that. Uh, Actually, people didn't want to ask you know, all these questions of their friends and have emails go out and all that noise and spamminess, some people out there actually were waiting to share. And so the service did have a a feature built in where you could just write reviews on your own. And so as we're looking at the data, how are users trying to interact uh, with Yelp at the time? It was obvious something there was something sticky, addictive, yeah. interesting about writing and reviews face- and being Facebook
0: was two thousand four, two thousand three. It was around the same time. Almost roughly. the same time, yeah. yeah. Plus
2: or minus maybe six months. Yeah. Same with YouTube. You know, there were a bunch of startups born, interesting. You know, Internet two yeah. 0, as they called it at the time. Uh, startups born, and so that was the the real insight that got us going was hey, there are people out there that want to share local information that want to be a, a critic, um, and they're just waiting for the right platform and so we started tuning the platform uh, to appeal to appeal to those users and help them get together and so forth and the service started taking off in san francisco
0: and then you expand all over the world and you have this great this great thing happens which doesn't happen very often as you become a verb (laughs) Because I remember uh, yeah. I was living in the UK at the time, and it hadn't quite made it over there yet. But I yeah. would come back here, and people like, and I was like, "Well, what do I do with you? Like, you just yelp it, yeah, just yelp it." That became, yeah. Insane. I
2: mean, it first happened here in San Francisco, but you know, we did start getting you know various cities going. We were a city by city uh, kind of growth um, company, and you know, much like Craigslist, I think it's because of uh, the local nature of Yelp. You really have to ha- reach a certain density of content for it to be relevant for. The average person and yeah. to become a verb and so it did take quite a long time uh, to get you know pretty good coverage across the us and then we did start internationalizing um, you can get yelp in most countries <laughs> around the world certainly uh, developed countries uh and the way that we we would grow actually we, you know we'd have a little community they'd write some content write some reviews it would then be published on the internet for all to see, much like a blog. And then Google would pick it up and send eyeballs, send traffic uh, to that content, because there really wasn't any information on your local dry cleaner, or there yeah. wasn't a whole lot of consumer information on a doctor, maybe some insurance information, et cetera. Uh, so it was a really you know, valuable niche, useful niche uh, that, that people were frankly looking for. And uh, you know so we were able to raise venture capital, uh, grow the company, and start launching internationally. Um, of course, lo and behold, Google realized how important (laughs) the local local space was as well. And so that, you know, that's where, you know, the, the friction and the competition started. Yeah. So what,
0: so what happens? So you're kind of at the vanguard of like this whole explosion of user generated content. That's kind of this new way that the internet is being used. Mm -hmm. Um, what changed? Why, how did you end up in Congress in 2011?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, Google was obviously dominating web search, uh, and, uh, and it was growing really fast. Initially, they, didn't, they weren't particularly focused on local, but I think over time, uh, particularly in the you know, mid-2000s, they realized that there were some vertically, what they called vertically-focused search engines that were creating potential competitive problems, you know, over the long haul. And, uh, you know, they noticed that a lot of local searches or a lot of their searches have local intent in them, whether it's, you know, for mapping information, but also, to, you know, to find a particular shop or service. And you know, and some of this has come out in documents uh, over time, you know, internally they were really fearful of what would happen if they didn't address this issue, if they didn't have their own solution. Uh, but. You know, going all the way back to kind of the 2005, 2006 early time frame of Yelp, uh, Google initially, you know, posed itself, uh, which we didn't necessarily believe, but posed itself as a friend and, hey, we're here to organize the world's information. That was their, their slogan uh, or mission statement at the time. And uh, it maybe still is their mission statement. And they said, just, you know, give us, give us your reviews, license us your reviews. We'll organize it. We'll send you traffic. Um, that's what we do. And so right. we, we worked with them initially but with a skeptical eye. And, you know, as they started building out their mapping product and then ultimately their local content uh, or at least, you know, elements of local search, we noticed it started looking more and more like what we were doing, what service we were providing. Yeah. And, you know, we warned them. We said, hey, we're okay with you doing all this mapping stuff and organizing our content around it. That's fine. But if you go into the business of collecting your own reviews, you can't use us as backfill. Yeah, Um, and of course, one day they tapped us on the shoulder and they said, "We're going to use you as backfill," (laughs) and that's when that's when we.
0: When you say backfill, backfill, what do you mean?
2: Um, You know, essentially, they had no content. And, you know, we had been operating for a number of years at the point at which they decided they wanted to get into our business. Right. And so they had So hoped if I look for
0: Mr. Chow's back then, it would be all of a sudden there'd be a bunch of Yelp reviews served up by them.
2: Right. They were right. very reliant on our content right. for local businesses and services at the time. We were, you know, one of, one of the major players um, in the space and probably the one with the greatest depth, of, depth and breadth of local content, at least in the U.S., And uh, so they they did have a conundrum, which is, hey, we want to steer consumers to our property, but our property has no content, Uh, and so how do we, you know, deliver an acceptable user experience? And so their hope was we're just going to use Yelp's content uh, because we have market power, we deliver all this traffic to the, you know, Yelp is very reliant on our internet traffic, our web traffic, we send them users, and so we can take advantage of that. Yelp isn't going to want to make waves, and we're going to, borrow their content, put it into our, you know, homegrown competitive property, force them to do that. uh, And then we're going to start collecting our own content. Eventually we'll be in a place where we can just jettison reliance on third parties like Yelp and then, uh, you know, essentially bury the competition and take over local search.
0: And they try to buy you.
2: Right. Yeah. So I mean, the the point at which uh, What, what year was that when they tried to buy you? That was late 2009, early 2010. Right. Um, mostly late 2009. And, you know, it came directly out of this conflict of, hey, they knew that they wanted to, you know, fight in the, in the local space. They thought it was too important uh, to uh, protect their web search monopoly to ignore. And they knew that they needed content. Uh, and so they decided... Uh, they would try to, you know, essentially force us uh, to give them their content. It didn't work out. There was a lot of back and forth and, uh, you know, articles in the media at the time around their bad behavior and trying to, to force us to give up our own content to compete with ourselves. And ultimately it, it resulted in them, you know, trying to buy the company. And so there was a conversation around that that ultimately, uh, you know, didn't bear fruit for either party. And so then we kind of ended up locked in a, a pretty contentious uh you know, battle right. that continues to this day. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so in 2011, yeah. you go to Congress.
2: Well, it wasn't just us. I mean, there was a process yeah. that had frankly started uh, without a whole lot of uh, of our assistance um, where the FTC was starting to pay attention to Google and the fact that it had this web monopoly and, and was trying to understand, hey, is there anything interesting here that, that they should be monitoring? Uh, you know, Congress uh had uh, a, a group of, of uh, politicians that were, that were similarly looking into you know Google's dominance and what did it mean and you know competition and, and there was already some impact to the market there had been some companies wiped out particularly in the comparison shopping space which ultimately became an issue in the EU uh, yeah. you know very visible issue in the EU but in the us um, you know, kind of was looked at as well in 2000, I guess around 2010, where there were some shopping sites that were wiped out by uh, Google's efforts. Um, and so, you know, we weren't super well versed in antitrust law or any of yeah. any of that stuff. Uh, but the investigation began, and we were, you know, battling Google very publicly. And so, it became obvious that this was, you know, something that that we should. Support you know answer calls when when regulators ask and frankly you know one of the ways that we got into this whole area and, and ultimately um, you know in front of uh, testifying in front of Congress was we found that Google would never do the right thing when just asked they would say they would do the right thing a lot of times but then they ultimately Don't would be evil. not
0: that's the thing they would right? not
2: they just yeah <laughs> totally disingenuous you know time and time again which I think you know continues to this day as we see various media stories if you if you asked them a direct question they would give you the reasonable answer but then their behavior would always be something else and so what we found was useful was just leaking the bad behavior or sharing the bad behavior with sympathetic journalists there were there were various moments where google would do something nefarious uh you know take our content or what have you and then we'd uh share the details of that to a journalist who would then put it in Is there one that, is there one
0: thing or one moment or one action they took that you that kind of sums up what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, probably the most egregious was, um, you know, they, they obviously have dominant share on, <laughs> on Android with control of Google Maps. And at the time, they had an app called, or they were building an app called Google Places, which was like a direct Yelp, uh, head-to-head kind of competitive app. Right. And, uh, you know, they had developed it, but they hadn't preloaded it on all Android phones. And so then one day... All Android phones got the Google Places app, which you couldn't delete. It was just like prime real estate on your phone. And then on top of that, the content—bing, bing—you wake up one morning and your app or your phone has a new app, and it's called Google Places, and it does kind of Yelp-like things. And on top of that, uh, it had our content in it. Which we had, we had by that time we had canceled the licensing with Google. They literally stole the content. It had your content in it. It had our content in it, no attribution, not even a link, <laughs> which we wouldn't have accepted anyways. But like, yeah. it was just completely stolen. Um, so that's an example, you know. And we shame them in the press. We would shame them in the press, and then they would usually, when shamed publicly. Uh, you know, take some action, try to, to remedy it. And so that they, they kind of trained us into the only way that we could push back and get them to do reasonable things and, and compete more reasonably is by going to, you know, initially journalists. And then eventually that, that actually started, I think Google realized that while they didn't appreciate the negative press, ultimately they could just ignore it and nothing would happen. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, The next step for us was there was a conference of attorneys generals in Hawaii and uh, our head of government relations at the time, Vince, gave a presentation of, like, here's all the things that Google's been doing in this particular space. And we think it's egregious and we think it makes for, you know, a great example of, uh, you know, abuse of a monopoly. And the the room was riveted. And, you know, there were some Google government relations people (laughs) in the audience as well and lawyers, et cetera. And so they were like, oh, yeah. we've got a problem here. Um, but you know, that presentation was kind of our first step into working with regulators and when interested government parties. Uh, I want to say probably 2011, early, right. to the, before the, the Senate testimony, but um, early on.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
0: So you've been public for the past seven years. Google mm-hmm. is obviously, whatever it is, $800 billion right. now. As I said before we started recording, I used to live in London for many years, and I've, so I've seen how the Europeans have approached Google. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about this stuff from 2011, obviously eight years on, and in, in the biggest, most important home market, nothing has happened, as far as I can tell, in terms of Google and being reined in.
2: Well, there, there's a really good reason for that. And it's just there's no one more powerful when it comes to soft money, lobbying, academic papers. Like Google has covered all of its bases when it comes to making sure that any kind of uh, regulatory action is delayed as long as possible. And, and I think that, that reflects, depending on your viewpoint, positively or negatively on Eric Schmidt. Like he was the CEO of Novell during the Microsoft case. Yep. And so he played the role, you know, he, <laughs> one, he was one of Yelp. the roles that, that was somewhat like the, the Jeremy role, uh, at Yelp. He was yeah. one of the little guys, uh, you know, going up against the monopoly. And so he, I'm sure understood very well where Google was going to end up eventually. And I think has laid the groundwork to make sure that Google is much better protected, uh, than Microsoft ever was.
0: Yeah, so for example, I know about the, we've written a lot about just the sheer lobbying dollars. Now it's... But
2: that's the tip of the iceberg. That's what you can
0: see. Yeah, so I was going to say, so what other stuff is going on?
2: I mean, case in point, there's been some great coverage over the years from the Washington Post um, about Google's relationship with GMU and GMU. Uh, George Mason University. Okay, and uh, there they have an antitrust you know, academic practice and uh, that is, I guess, fairly well respected. And some of the FTC people have tight relationships right. with school. And Google started putting on or sponsoring, I should say, uh, academic conferences and discussions about antitrust and tech regulation and so forth. However, it was not disclosed at all. And so you have FTC commissioners and their staff coming over to the university, thinking that they're getting programming Mm. that is, you know, by somewhat neutral uh, academics. But actually the check (laughs) to fund that program was written by Google. The panel discussion, you know, all the content was programmed by Google or at least signed off by Google. Uh, So that's just a taste of the type of thing that uh, they've been able to do. That's very hard to see.
0: Yeah. It's
2: very invisible. Um, you know, they also have think tanks uh, and academics that they sponsor to put out papers. I mean, even. Well, there was yeah. that
0: controversy, was it last year, where some people who. What is it? New Economy, whatever it's new called? New America. New yeah. America, yeah. Where yeah. they put out this paper saying Google effectively should be broken up or it's too powerful, and then.
2: Yeah, they, they did, they did, did some research that, that suggested that, hey, we do really have a monopoly problem, and so big tech should be regulated. And this was within a think tank that Eric Schmidt uh, funded. was very involved in and funded, yeah. and they you know, tossed out the group <laughs> unceremoniously that had done uh, that research. And now that, that group has its own um, you know, funding and, yeah. and is putting out you know, great work. And say, so, yeah, that's another example. Another good one is just the revolving door um, at the White House, and you know some of it's been leaked uh, through. Uh, I, I think there's been some, some email leaks uh, that showed the very close connection between the White House and the FTC um, surrounding kind of the when, when the FTC was looking at Google. Uh, there's also just the, the sheer number of employees that went and worked in the Obama White oh, yeah. House over time, and you know another. This is another sort of soft money uh, example. Like, guess who came to the rescue and fixed healthcare.gov, which was you know the insurance website. Uh, that was uh, very integ- integral yeah. to Obamacare. It was you know, a SWAT team of a bunch of Googlers and Eric Schmidt connection. And, right. you know, so they rushed in and propped up a totally broken $800 million government <laughs> f- IT disaster the, yeah. saved by Google. And like, Barack you know, Obama's
0: flagship project. Yeah, and then project, you, had,
2: yeah. you had Eric Schmidt wearing a, a literal staff badge at, uh, at Hillary Clinton's uh, event election night. Um, so there was extremely close ties between the, the levers of power uh, in the Democratic Party and, and Google.
0: So this would be a very unfashionable uh, view to take in Silicon Valley, but is Trump a good thing then?
2: There's no way you can get me to say that Trump, <laughs> Trump, <laughs> Trump is, a, is a good thing. Um, you know, I, I think...
0: But is there I, I uh, do
2: I actually think you know the, the the good news is it's become so obvious that a few large tech companies have unbelievable power and aren't necessarily wielding it for good um, and you know and, and the incentives are all wrong uh, like if you think about say Google with YouTube, its incentive is to maximize human attention that is the North star for making the yes. most money, you know, any media product ultimately is about attracting people to take a look and then showing advertisements. And unfortunately, you take that to the extreme with YouTube and you get, you know, the worst possible elements of, of humanity yeah. emerge, unfortunately. The great and, and Google is optimized yeah. for that. And so you get radicalization, you get conspiracy theories, you get all sorts of, yeah. of nastiness. And so I think it's actually become a for, you know, the, the one silver lining is there is now a bipartisan overlap where both parties are saying, OK, you know, there's a problem here. We can't just sit on our hands anymore. Something that, has that to be is done. what is
0: really interesting is that it does feel like potentially for the first time that both Republicans and Democrats are saying, yeah, we might have a problem here. And I don't know if 2016 was in one way or another the kind of the wake up call. But it does feel like there's a there's a change.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think both sides feel the heat. You know, I, I would say that the Democratic side feels like, oh, these companies were manipulated and we got the wrong outcome in the election, and and who's watching? You know, the, these incredible media powers. Yeah. Um, and then the other side is saying, oh, well, if you're gonna crack down on what people are saying. How's that going to affect us and, you know, some of the more fringy (laughs) but popular people in our party? And so I think, yeah, as a result, you have bipartisan support for at least taking a look. And then the question is, what are the solutions? So,
0: yeah, so that's the question now is that, so there's this report in the past week that um, the FTC slash DOJ seemed to have struck some kind of agreement that there is going to be some type of serious look at what google is doing and i imagine that will spread to facebook and others over time whatever given your experience over the past 15 years are you hopeful or do you have some sense of the mood music that it really has changed and that there really will be some kind of teeth to whatever is coming
2: i'm hopeful only in the sense that the problem keeps getting worse and so doing nothing becomes less and less of an option um you know, you generally, <laughs> to do hard things, uh, you often need a crisis. And, and I think we're, it feels like we're, we're barreling into a crisis where there's a few companies with unbelievable power and influence over society, over what we hear, over what people do, over what they think. And I think that's terrifying. And so hopefully we can, you know, do something, uh, you know, before it's too late. Uh, You can imagine, like, if Google suddenly decided, hey, we want to counteract this stuff and we're going to essentially manipulate people by what our algorithms surface, like, they could more actively manipulate society and what Americans think just with the sheer power of YouTube. Facebook could do the same thing. Uh, You know, I don't believe that they're doing that right now. I think they're just maximizing for revenue. But that's equally problematic (laughs) in its own way.
0: Yeah, because it's kind of a... And We've talked about it a lot on this podcast, in one form or another. But it's it's a lot. It's it's just the kind of these kind of bloodless algorithms optimizing what they're set up to optimize, which is, as you say, engagement time spent. No matter how you get there, and then you have all of these results, which are just you know. Pretty yeah, horrendous. and
2: if you, the interesting thing, well, there's a couple of scary and interesting things. If you go back and look at you know the history of media. As mass media was created, it was used for all sorts of nefarious purposes, propaganda, world wars, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's a bit terrifying. And then you look at yeah. you know, well, some Facebook of the, some of the na- aftermath.
0: Facebook was named by the U.N. as a kind of perhaps unwitting co-conspirator in genocide. Right. That's right. very real.
2: And then you look at the aftermath, and actually media is highly has been— Highly regulated. It's only in the last, call it, twenty years that it's yeah. been, you know, sort of deregulated on the broadcast side, maybe somewhat, and then, you know, when it comes to the internet, completely unregulated. Right. And so it does feel like the pendulum is going to have to swing, and then, you know, the question is, what crisis or bad other thing has to happen before we have the will uh, to regulate and do something?
0: And you, as a kind of um a business, a competitor, if you are directly in Google's line of fire or, you know, something that they see as important to their business, given everything you were just saying, do you think it is, is it possible to survive? Because there are some companies who have grown up in various different bits of this kind of local services Mm -hmm. space that do seem to be doing well, at least for now, in various different things but i don't know if they're whether it's next door or whatever um but they're not as kind of in direct competition as say you guys are
2: yeah i mean obviously there will always be issues that google hasn't pursued or doesn't see as strategic Um, in the ones that it does see as strategic it tends to have pretty big impact Um, you know it doesn't necessarily mean that your company dies i think Yelp is a good example of like We've survived. Uh, you know, there's a fair question of how would we have flourished if if Google wasn't putting us at the center of the bullseye. And there's also the the missing outcome. Like if you go to Europe, where do you get your local content, and how high quality is it? Google, right. I mean, yeah. And Google actually isn't very focused <laughs> on providing the best, richest, most helpful reviews. It's more of a you know a blocking strategy. And mm-hmm. so then the content and the quality of the experience suffers. I think, you know, here in the U.S., people talk about Yelp and I think give it some extra credibility beyond just, hey, it's some junky content about local businesses. It's No, it's got personality. It's got depth to it. There's a whole community behind it. Um, and so Europe has gotten a knockoff product essentially and that's a shame.
0: Yeah. And so what is the future for you guys? So let's just say operate in a world where Google just remains Google and, you know, the FTC looks around, you know, looks under the rocks and doesn't do anything, et cetera. But um, does it basically mean you just have less and less margin for error or do you just like, you have X amount of money in the bank and you just have to hold on for dear life for as long as you can while that money slowly dissipates? I mean, what's the...
2: I mean, the, the challenge for us, uh, you know, where Google really affected us was in our web growth. You know, the traffic that we were getting from uh, from search kind of flatlined um, maybe now four or five years ago. And that was what we were relying on to grow into Europe. So we'd launched all these markets. They were growing. And then Google essentially... And why essentially did it flatline? Things- was
0: that... Did that coincide with what they- Google turned
2: up its aggression in putting its own property, its own competitive property first and burying everything else. Right. You know, maybe there was some room, like TripAdvisor was also a, a competitor uh, in the restaurant segment anyways in Europe. And so, like, to the extent there was crumbs available for one player, TripAdvisor sort of got a lot of those crumbs. Yeah. And so that left Yelp Yelp Europe starving uh, yeah. for oxygen. And um, and so we had to find other avenues Uh, for consumer growth. And so in the U.S., you know, it it became apps, uh, or in particular, the Yelp app. And um, and because our, our brand was much better established here in the U.S., like, consumers were willing to convert over to our app. And so that gave us an independent connection directly to consumers. So people that liked Yelp could get access to Yelp content. They didn't necessarily have to go through search engine. Of course, the more that Android is successful, the more challenging that becomes because all the hooks within Android and the operating system on that type of phone lead you to the competitor, which is yeah. Google Maps and Google reviews. Yeah. Uh, and so that system is somewhat rigged. But you know, we have essentially survived um, and you know, continued to grow revenue, albeit you know, at a slower rate than we would like and I think that we would have had uh, if we were you know, competing on a level playing field. And so
0: you have this investor, SQN, who's come you know, coming for your head. Um, do you think the some of the issues that they are talking about, how much of that is down to just, we just happened to choose a business that Google was quite interested in. So it's just reduced our any margin for error you have in trying to grow a business.
2: I mean, ultimately what investors focus on is, is revenue growth. Yeah. Um, and I would say a lot of our resources have had to go into... Uh, managing consumer growth um, and so finding an independent channel of distribution to get use, to allow users to access our content and you know to the if if there's a knock on yelp it would be hey we're we're underdeveloped in our business products you know and we're, we're a smaller company certainly than google which you know has quite a few engineers you know, we can't focus on everything so for many many years you know, the, the most important thing was, hey, how do we maintain consumer growth? How do we keep allowing more and more people to access our products and discover the power of, of our content and of the app?
0: And how do you do that if this giant search funnel, the biggest in the world, is basically sending users elsewhere?
2: Developing a fantastic app. Uh, you know, we also uh, focused in particular on the restaurant vertical And so we have some restaurant services products uh, like Yelp Reservations, which competes with OpenTable, Yelp Waitlist, which is kind of its own thing uh, for waitlist restaurants. And so those give us a totally different way to touch consumers, which is, hey, you want to book a restaurant, or you're waiting on the waitlist, and then you can get the Yelp app while you're waiting, or you can even skip the line from the Yelp app. Uh, So we've been very creative uh, at coming up with solutions to get around the fact that web search has been essentially cut off. You know, it's kind of frozen in time.
0: What is the status with the SQN and all these changes they're calling for? I mean, is it still you guys are just at loggerheads or you guys have, a, it feels like you have done I mean, couple, we're, we're always open steps?
2: to investor feedback. You know, certainly we want to grow revenue as, as fast as possible. And um, I would say we feel pretty confident on our, consumer growth side, which frees up bandwidth, uh, you know, both for myself as well as, you know, product and engineering and others within the company to, uh, you know, really drive the business model forward. And so, you know, I remain optimistic, uh, you know, that we've got a great team and we've got a great, you know, plan in place and, you know, the results will then speak for themselves. Yeah.
0: Have you been, has the government been in touch about this new new round of whatever it's going to be? Inquiry, investigation?
2: Um, you'd have to talk to our government. I haven't personally engaged right. on it yet. Um, presumably, the, you know, in general, when there's uh, antitrust activity in the U.S. or Europe, you know, we are involved and we, we're always open to talking to regulators and provide support. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. And just in terms of going back to X.com and PayPal, et cetera, are you surprised where things have got to, where you do have these just behemoths? There's you a know, handful of companies that effectively seem to control huge swathes of the Internet and or society.
2: I'm not that surprised, um, just reading kind of the history. Like Tim Wu's written a bunch of great books uh, on antitrust and history of media and, and so forth. And so that's brought me up to speed in a lot of things I... I didn't know, I I think it's a natural cycle. You have kind of a new market. There's a lot of activity and, uh, you know, new opportunities become available. And then ultimately a few big players emerge and then try to cut off the oxygen to everyone else. You know, and and part of that is driven by their desire to just grow and drive more profitability. It's, It's a rational thing to do, but at some point it no longer benefits consumers and it actually just benefits the owners of that business. Um, And so I think it is important and history has shown that it can be quite useful, um, you know, to to actually aggressively regulate and potentially break up companies and and so forth. Like one example, just to make it more tangible, is if you remember, you know, the iPhone relied on one important thing uh, that I didn't even know was possible, which was it needed one of the. Uh, wireless companies to say yes, you can put your relatively open platform, uh, you know, your internet device on our network. Yeah. Like prior to that, if you look at the wireless landscape, particularly you know in the U.S. but also most other places, you had a few wireless companies, and they completely constrained any kind of connection to the internet. So you could have some games and email things, yeah. but they were awful. And they were very expensive and because they're, you know, generating revenue, the wireless companies don't really want to let an open platforms like being able to have a really great web browser that works pretty much like a desktop machine and alleviates the need to buy all these (laughs) chunky apps. And ultimately the iPhone was able to partner with one of these uh, wireless companies and launch in the U.S. But the only reason why that landscape existed was because AT&T had been broken up, you know, whatever it was, 30, 40 years prior. And so there were a bunch of different telephone companies, each of which that became wireless uh, companies as well. And so there was enough competition so that Apple could go around and shop the iPhone to a bunch of different, and ultimately, you know, I think it was the weakest player at the time. It was like, yeah, we'll do it. And then that opened the floodgates. And so I think that is the real problem over time is if you have markets dominated by, you know, just a a couple key players or maybe one player, like the doors stay shut.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And that's a problem.
0: And so does kind of leaning into the, uh, in this kind of David versus Goliath, Dynamic does it does leaning into the David role help in any way in terms of brand allegiance or getting people to kind of support Yelp for some reason other than just this is you know a great app. I, I, don't,
2: like I don't think most of our consumers are paying a whole <laughs> lot of attention to uh, you know the big tech debate. Yeah, I'm sure there's some out there that that are following along. You know the reason that that we ended up in this place that you know is sort of back. To the, the history of the relationship between us and, and Google, and the fact that Google often knew basically every time they were doing something nefarious, they completely knew it. And then when we'd have the reasonable heart to heart conversation, they would say, Yeah, you're right, this is ungoogly of us, we're going to change it. And then they'd just, they just wouldn't actually
0: say ungoogly. They
2: would absolutely say
0: that. I, I
2: John Hanke, if you're out there, you remember. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and so they, you know, they, they would know that they were doing something that was pushing the envelope or just being evil. And they would say, we're going we're gonna to stop doing that. And then we just wouldn't hear from them for a month. And so that we'd have to go and talk to a journalist or what have you. And then they'd say, yeah, that's horrible. I'm going to write a story about that. And then Google would be shamed. And then they would you know, potentially alleviate uh, or eliminate that, that bad behavior for a time. And so that just natural process of catching them doing something bad, outing them, uh, you know turned into talking to government rela- regulators and then yeah. having the regulators reach out to Google and then Google suddenly like makes the change right um, it's frustrating but uh you know it, it's been a way to at least slow down the encroachment of Google on our space right. like i obviously like i think they've still you know dialed the aggression up to 10 but it it may have slowed them down and that that would be a you know a win in some yeah in some some people's eyes
0: right and how much of the the kind of the difficulties are are self-imposed like for example what sqn is arguing that you just haven't innovated like you, you came up with this idea and then have kind of stalled or thrashed around for ideas and not followed them through etc um, and how much of it is just we're just fighting this goliath and it's just really hard
2: I mean, I I don't think that there's any lack of innovation. I mean, it, we have an incredible track record uh, on the product side. I mean, starting from we were a web company uh, in right. you know 2004 2005. Like we were a website, and then the iPhone was born in 2007, and when they announced that uh, they were going to build you know a, an app platform, we kind of went all in on that. Like, we had tiny resources in 2007, 2008. And so we had an app in the store at launch Um, and, you know, pretty much every time after the app store launched, pretty much every time, I think it actually might be every time Steve Jobs was on stage, he would call out Yelp uh, in particular as an example of, you know, the possibility of apps and how you didn't need to be doing web searches like you should be within. Yeah. Apps and, and I think he appreciated our uh, competitive stance towards Google, and we we're fairly well aligned on that. And like we've had a fantastic relationship with Apple, you know, one of the most innovative companies in the world. You know, we've launched uh, you know new and exciting products like Request a Quote, where you know we can eliminate. Uh, some of the frustration around calling a bunch of, you know, plumbers and not having them call you back. It's like, actually, you can just message them all within Yelp and talk to four or five simultaneously. And so that's been a huge win with consumers. Uh, And then, you know, more recently on the restaurant product side, we've obviously got Yelp Reservations, which competes with OpenTable, which maybe is a known thing. But then we've got this really innovative product uh, that's blown up for us, uh, which is Yelp Waitlist, which allows you to go to some of the most popular places that – don't actually take reservations. And instead of standing there in the cold, and this is probably relevant to, to your listeners in I mean, London, yeah, yeah. instead of standing in the fog and the rain yeah, and the horrible weather waiting for this popular you know, uh, cafe or what have you, you can actually have an electronic modern system uh, that is an electronic waitlist that you can join remotely from your Yelp app. And so that's driven a lot of engagement and distribution uh, of the Yelp app independent of Google, which, which right. has been great for us. So, you know, there's no slowing down. I would say, is it hard to compete with an $800 billion, uh, you know, monopoly? Absolutely. But, you know, are we an innovative survivor? Absolutely. You know, it's no easy task. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're fighting the good fight and we're having a good time doing it.
0: And so there is a way to make money other than ads. Because that's the other thing. People just like, people hate ads. Almost in whatever form they are. Whether it's in the top of your search results.
2: Well, if they hate ads, then <laughs> they certainly click on a lot of them. And, yeah. you know, most of these companies that we're talking about that have, you know, some of the greatest businesses or business models in the world, oh, uh, yeah. you know, are ad-based. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think ads are fine if they're relevant and in the right places and they're unintrusive and, uh, you know, they're not detract overly detracting from the consumer experience. You know, one example would be, you know, here if, if you're in – you know, San Francisco and you need a, a locksmith and you search locksmiths and we show you, you know, five that are in the sponsored section that are all great. and You can see the reviews and then you see another, you know, five below that that are, you know, maybe organically surfaced. What is it like if a if, uh, locksmith has 50 great reviews versus some other guy that has 100 great reviews, like does it really matter? Like ultimately it's binary. Yeah. Did they, you know, can they come and help you at this moment of need? And so, I, you know, I don't think all ads are bad, but, you know, I think you do have to take into account, you know, things like privacy and privacy implications. And, yeah. I, you know, the, the counterbalance is if your product is overly ad-heavy uh, or overly spammy, like, consumers will ditch it. Yeah. Uh, and so there is, like, a natural uh, forcing like a, function a to balance. keep the consumer yeah. experience, you know, in a reasonable place.
0: I was just reading while doing some last-minute research before I came over here, there's a documentary basically comparing Yelp to the mafia in terms of strong-arming restaurants or something into signing up with the service or paying for certain ratings, etc. What do you think of that?
2: I, mean, I would say one of the first companies to be hit with misinformation <laughs> in the social media world, the Twitter world, and et cetera, et cetera, was, uh, was Yelp. So there's always been conspiracy theories because, particularly in the US, Yelp has market power. Yeah. And so if you're a local business, you want great reviews, uh, fundamentally. And some businesses want to skip the line and just write their own reviews or ask, solicit them from friends, uh, biased reviews, et cetera. And you know, I would say Yelp was at the forefront of saying, no, like, we want to be as accurate as possible and to be as accurate as possible we had to develop uh, a way of filtering out the content that we couldn't trust yeah. for one reason or another and so we have this recommendation algorithm that sorts reviews and so on any business's page you can see right on the page obviously there's the reviews that we've left there and then at the bottom there's a link that you can follow that says how many reviews are not recommended and this has caused a lot of business friction because you know businesses want to want to control their reputation on on Yelp because yep. better reputation on Yelp means more money in their pocket. Yep. And uh, we've taken daggers in our back over the years because of this functionality, which is actually there to protect consumers. Um, there's never been any connection to advertising. Obviously, it's there for everyone uh, on Yelp. Every business is covered by it. We sacrifice about thirty percent, twenty to somewhere like twenty to thirty percent depending on the business, of our content isn't shown at any given time.
0: Oh, really? Just because yeah. they flag, they're flagged yeah. for one reason And so this
2: flies in the complete opposite direction of a YouTube that says, yep. hey, every last viewer, we want them on our site so that we can monetize them. Yelp has slowed down its business dramatically to try and maintain that trust with consumers. And, you know, occasionally there's journalists that, that uh, give us credit for having a more trustworthy review site, but some of the business owner community is frustrated at the lack of control and the, the belief right. that somehow advertising connects to this thing, which is completely independent. And so that results in you know, whether it's business owners complaining or in this case a low-budget uh, you know, film of some kind. Yeah, I'm same. surprised so that regurgitating I regurgitating the same nonsense, but yeah, know, it well, is nonsense.
0: My last question. In your circles of CEOs, founders, et cetera, do you detect a shift in attitude or feeling toward the big companies? In that, you know, are they seen as kind of robber barons, kind of people who are trying to squash competition in ways that aren't fair? Or is it just, is there, are people more apathetic or just kind of, no, it's going to be fine? Or is there, do you, yeah, do you detect a shift in mood or feeling here?
2: I mean, unlike... The Microsoft days where Microsoft was up in Seattle and so yeah. the interconnection between the tech industry here in Silicon Valley and the tech industry in Seattle was actually somewhat separated. And so I think that allowed the companies here to take a more adversarial yeah, position screw, screw them publicly. Kind of, screw yeah. them, they're a Seattle company. And I think unfortunately a lot of uh, you know the big tech players that we're talking about are here and uh, you know are interconnected both, you know, just in relationships, um, but then also money. Uh, you have Google Ventures, Capital G, uh, and even board seats. I mean, look at the if you look at the competitive set uh, or the sort of adjacent businesses to Yelp. You have I think Square has a board member that is a Google person. Yext, another company in our, in our you know general space, has yeah. a a Google board member, and so they've put out their tentacles everywhere. Uh, And that, that gets back to it's not just the lobbying dollars. There's so much influence that is hidden from view, and it keeps everyone nice and quiet.
0: Right. Well, I
2: wish you luck in the fight. Thanks for telling our story. Yeah, pleasure. And
0: that is all the time we have. I want to thank Jeremy, who made himself available at very short notice. Uh, The kind of the new Google news broke, and I was like, "Who should I talk to?" I reached out to Yelp, and they made it happen very quickly. And it certainly gave me something, lots of stuff to think about. I hope it did for you as well. I may even be writing about it this weekend, so do check that out in the paper, the Sunday times online at thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on the Twitters at Danny Fortson. Uh, you can email me Danny.fortson at Sunday times.co.uk. And one more thing, if you haven't done it, take a moment, give a rating and a review. It really does help push us up the rankings, helps other people find the show. And that's what we want. So anyhow, that is it. I hope you have a fantastic weekend and we'll talk to you next week.